So our first lesson comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes to your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor you say, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Amen.
thank you, choir, for that. I also want to thank Deb uh, Stevenson, who is returning uh, as our oboist, and uh, Jocelyn Davis-Beck, who provided the cello, and our guest organist and accompanist, Ronald Weber. Uh, thank you so very much for sharing your gifts with us on this Sunday. Gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Mark. We're continuing in Mark's Gospel. We're now in the seventh chapter, verses 24 through 37. Jesus, wrote Mark, set out on his way to the region of Tyre. He entered a house, did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, For saying this, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus turned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. They brought him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech and they begged him to lay his hand on them and he took him aside in private away from the crowd, put his fingers into his ears and spat and touched his tongue and then looking up to heaven he said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The Gospel of the Lord. Pray with me. As we hear these words, we seek your word. For you have the word of eternal life. To whom shall we go? In all the words that are spoken and sung, may the word of your Spirit find our heart, and may we be changed to the glory of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Everyone who is thirsty in spirit, oh, everyone who is weary and sad, come to the fountain, there's fullness in Jesus. All you are longing for, come and be glad. I will pour water on him that is thirsty. I will pour floods upon the dry ground. Open your hearts for the gift I am bringing. While you are seeking me, I will be found. The single most difficult fact in Christian faith 
is that everyone is called to the table. The history of Christianity in every age and place can be followed by tracing just how difficult it is to keep that radical proclamation that everyone is invited. The Protestant Reformation, the leaders of the Reformed churches, wanted to be clear about what we were doing with the Eucharist. Roman Catholics taught that the elements of the communion, the bread and the wine, were substantially transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. And this transformation or transubstantiation occurred by the power of the church transferred through the very hands of the priest. The reformers were very clear that the elements did not change their substance. The molecules did not mysteriously shift from wheat and juice to flesh and blood. It was the gathering of the faithful community and the act of distribution poured out Christ's presence upon the community of faith. And by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we would know Christ present with us. The major concern of the reformers was that the sacrament should be rightly understood. And that is why in the Presbyterian Church, the sacrament always follows the sermon so that I can give you some sense of instruction here and that the clergy do not hold a special talent or zapping to make the sacrament so. It is the gathered people of God in the presence of the elders that make the sacrament, in our sense, work. So prior to communion, those who were to commune back at the time of the Reformation and instruction decided that they were to receive proper training before they could then receive the sacrament, lest anybody think it was magic or mumbo-jumbo, as the Reformers said of the Romanists. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why we seldom have communion outside of the context of the gathered community of faith, as your ministry, I don't make the sacraments work, so I can't wander off and be communing people kind of on the side. Now, if somebody wants communion and they're a shut-in and can't physically arrive and worship with us, I'm to bring an elder as a representative of the congregation so that we always have in mind the whole body of Christ. Myself as minister, a member of the Chicago Presbytery, which is an ecumenical connection with churches all over the world, plus the elders that you have elected and ordained to serve in governance over the congregation, plus the members. It's that whole gathered community that makes it a sacrament, not the stuff of the bread or of the juice. We are assembled as the body of Christ. And the imagery that I like when I am serving communion is that moment in which I say the body of Christ and in a single glance I see the bread in front of me, I see your face and beside you, behind you I see the gathered community of Christ. No one piece of that is the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ present in its collective manifestation. Now the reformers wanted to make that clear. They were so concerned that people understand communion that in 1540 John Calvin proposed that people receive education before they're permitted to the table and as evidence of their education they would receive a communion token. Now the elders in Geneva didn't like that idea that people would have to qualify to come to the table but in 1650 the Huguenots and the Scottish Presbyterians adopted just that. 
During the week, the elders would offer several instructional classes the week before that communion was to be served. And everybody who attended the class and then passed the examination would be given a little metal token that they would then bring to communion. And then on communion Sunday, the presiding elder would stand and you would present the token to the elder and then he would permit you to come to the table. Interestingly enough, that tradition continued in many Presbyterian churches clear up until World War I. I've actually had conversations with people who remembered when they had to come and get a communion token before they could come to the table. And how odd. In an attempt to get people to understand the grand inclusion of the communion table, they introduced a system that made it exclusive. <laughs> it's the struggle of the church. It is the ongoing confusion that somehow we have to figure out if people understand the grace of Christ enough so that they can participate in receiving the grace of Christ, but what part of that makes it no longer grace? Unfortunately, the struggle of the church is this. The call of Jesus Christ to the table includes everyone and that my friends is hard work it's like planning a big wedding and you know you have to invite the embarrassing bumpkin cousins because unfortunately they're cousins and you know you couldn't pick out who your dad's sister was gonna marry right and you try and figure out how to set up the table settings so that nobody has to see the fact that they chew with their lips open and lick the butter off of their knives. So you find a table kind of back in the corner where you don't have to really admit they're there. In our human condition, we love to set ourselves apart from others, from the rest of the unclean world. We want to come to church and find our kind of people. We want to connect our aspirational declaration that somehow we're better than others because we, we have been saved by grace. Unlike the other people who were saved by, I don't know. But just when we think that we found our unique balance of right-thinking behavior, in stomps in the Gospel of Mark, the 7th chapter, the 26th verse, this woman. She's a Gentile She's of Syrophoenician origin, and she has a demon-possessed daughter. How rude! Heads turn, eyes roll. Someone mutters, who let her in? Fortunately, Jesus happens to be in the room. So as the woman begs him to heal her daughter, he reminds her that she hasn't brought the right token. <laughs> Why should I pay any attention to you, says Jesus? Should I take the bread meant for the children and toss it to a dog like you? Suddenly there's a sigh of relief. The whole room goes, Whew. The filthy one has been rebuffed by Jesus, and we can all feel better about our flinching prejudices. Never mind that Jesus just told the Pharisees a couple of days before that nothing that goes into the, bile defile, into the body defiles. Unclean things are what come out of the body. Contrary to his teeth, teaching, Jesus has just dismissed the woman as a deplorable. I remember an old sermon illustration. It's used by many preachers. I don't know who started it, but I've heard it many times. Perhaps you have. 
to help you discern your values and priorities. The preacher would suggest that you open your checkbook, the quaint instruction, and look down the register and see where your money goes. While scrolling through the register, you can see how your resources are distributed according to what you value. Isn't that cute? It's a nice illustration. It's no longer helpful. Do you even know where your check register is? My kids think it's kind of quaint that I still balance my checkbook in an Excel file as if somehow my Excel file is going to be more accurate than the bank. Um, and if I caught an error, that I'd have any hope whatsoever of reconciling it because I had an Excel file. More often than not, I find out the data entry error is mine. But you get the picture. Roll through where you've spent your money. That'll show you your values. But the aspirational inventory is also a helpful one. And so rather than trying to find your check register, let's open up your calendar. Eh. How do you spend your time? What parts of your time do you value? What do you look forward to? What connections and arrangements are high on the list of things that you anticipate? In whose presence are you striving to be? This woman, a Gentile, an ethnic Greek, with an unclean daughter, had no patience for protocol. She didn't care that Jesus had just called her a dog. All she cared about was the fact that her daughter was oppressed and she wanted her released. And full of attitude, she barks back to Jesus, Look, even dogs get crumbs off of the table. Are you going to heal my daughter or not? And implicit in the text, Jesus, slightly startled by her comeback, glares at her for a moment, and he begins to smile, and then he begins to laugh and rocks back and forward with a deep belly laugh. She just bested him. For one brief moment, Jesus had put on a Pharisee's coat of exclusivity, and she pointed out, Jesus, that doesn't fit. Of course, Jesus said, your daughter's already healed. James, in his letter, points out the incompatibility of favoritism and the gospel. You do well, he writes, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So there you have it. It is impossible to discuss the grace of salvation and at the same time try and figure out who does and does not merit that self-same grace. If we are included, if we are permitted bread from the table, who are we to claim that someone else is unwelcome or uninvited or unworthy? Now, Simply put, in the community of faith, we just say you're all welcome to the table. The phrase I use is regardless of your religious tradition or your spiritual condition. And interestingly enough, it's not particularly difficult or hard to do to say you all come. After all, you get us a little piece of bread and a shot glass of juice. That's not hard. 
But what about the other unmerited graces that we have received where we become flinching? What about refugees? What about the poor? What about the dispossessed? Because if the table of the Lord stands as a substantial presence of how we are to treat one another in Christ, then there's no way to walk from this table of open invitation to any other table in our lives without wrestling with that same inclusivity. Whether it's your dinner table or your boardroom table or your desk wherever you may be. Christ is present at all those tables. May we find the capacity to show that same grace. Oh, everyone who is thirsty in spirit, oh, everyone who is weary and sad, come to the fountain there's fullness in Jesus all you are longing for come and be glad I will pour water on him that is thirsty I will pour floods upon the dry ground open your hearts for the gifts I am bringing while you seeking me I will be found